Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's M Pavilion talk, Story, Story. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Yalukit Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalukit Willem are part of the Bunurang, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their lands and their elders, past, present, and into the future. Now this evening, we shall be exploring the curious topic behind the role of narrative in architecture, architecture as storyteller, and the impact the symbiotic relationship between space and story has at diverse community and cultural dimensions. We will also be interrogating the increasing alternative modes architectural environments, that of physical and virtual space. My name is Sarah Song, and I will be chairing tonight's discussion. Now, an age-old idiom is that good things come in threes, and tonight we are extremely privileged to have three pairs of extremely um, well, uh, well-experienced specialists. Two from gaming and software, two architectural educators, and two architectural academics. From my very right, we have Dr. Katisha Pedic, lecturer in architecture at University of South Australia. Dr. Pedisic, works has, um, work has examined spatial registers through the making of drawing and digital film works, particularly focusing on temporal narratives. Next to her, we have Dr. Rachel Hurst, Senior Lecturer and Design Coordinator in Architecture at the University of South Australia. Dr. Hurst's interest lies in complex narratives and its resilient and recurrent behaviour across intimate domestic spaces to public and civic realms. We also have with us Stephanie Lidicott, researcher and architectural designer and academic at the University of Melbourne. Stephanie's research focuses, focus lies at the nexus of architecture and health, in particular exploring patient perception of the built environment. We also have with us Simona Kastrikum, who is currently a PhD candidate in architecture at the University of Melbourne School of Design. Simona is, I'm sure you are well aware, a recognised figure within the music industry and for her original electronic and techno compositions. And it is through her diverse practice in both music and architecture that facilitates her exploration currently of borderline spaces that are tied together by narratives of nonconformity. We also have with us Ken Wong, creative director at Melbourne-based game development in stu uh, development studio Mountains. For those of us gamers, we are probably all recognising Ken's uh, name for his work as lead designer behind the highly celebrated mobile game, Monument Valley. And we also have with us Joshua Boggs, game designer at Love Shack Entertainment. Josh is well known as the game designer and creative mind behind uh, winning award game, Framed, and its sequel, Frame 2, which is highly praised for its innovative way of engaging people in narrative through rearranging uh, comic book strips. During this discussion, our panellists will also be referring to some of their works through the night. In order for you to engage with what they're referring to, we have set up an Instagram page, uh, Story M Pavilion, no spaces, all lowercase, which we highly encourage you to look through as we are in discussion. And also, if you'd like to put a couple of your own images, please do so as well. <laughs> so the structure of tonight's panel does focus on the discussion that our six guides will lead us on. However, it is the contribution of all of you here tonight that will propel our experience into something spectacular and help us delve deeper and further into topic of narrative, which we are discussing tonight. 
As the cosmologist and author Carl Sagan pointedly put, every question is a cry to understand the world, so there is no such thing as a dumb question. So we adamantly encourage you to formulate any questions and queries you may have, either to a specific seeker or to the panel at large. And a chance for you to voice these queries will be provided after each of the topics discussed. Now I think I've covered the logistics of it all, so why don't we get down to the fun of it. Now, we are all familiar with storytelling and also listening to provocative tales. It colours us all in various ways. Just out of curiosity, can I get a hand as to how many of you may be gamers here tonight? Oh yes, here we go, yep. Architects? Lovely. How many of you are students still currently studying? Excellent. And how many of you are professionals currently working in the industry? Lovely. So you can see the diverse range of specialties we all have and bring with us. So before we get into the thick of the entire discussion, I think it's prudent to first generate a universal image by asking you, the panel here tonight, a two-part question. Firstly, how and what do you describe narrative crux of our conversation tonight as for yourself? And also, how has it been significant to you? Probably start from... Where's the mic? There you go. I think Josh, you're up first. All right. Um, so I think... I mean, a lot of people have different ideas of what narrative is. Uh, to me, it's just boiled down to one person trying to communicate something to someone else. Um, so that you know that that can be a, you know a TV show or a, a video game or um, you know space itself. Um, that was what was the second part of the question? Sorry. How significant? How significant? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think you know growing up in a in a uh, a family that didn't have a lot of time, um, you know, due to you know, just trying to make ends meet. I think stories played a really important and pivotal role in being able to understand the world as well. Um, so I think from my perspective, that was how pivotal like, stories were. Cool. Um, I might start with the second part of the question. Um, I think I grew up with a lot of stories from films and books and TV shows, and I played a lot of games, but a lot of them were the kind of games that you play as a pastime and it's kind of like a bit more similar to sport or uh, you know stuff like Mario Kart like Street Fighter like like Tetris these are games that are more like activities and they're about the, the sport of it and I didn't really play those for the storytelling and I think um, more recently I've been kind of connecting my love for storytelling with my practice of, of game design and um, I think games tell story in a very unique way um, because it's interactive and you're participating and you're part of the story. And uh, to answer the first part of the question, to me, narrative is... It, I think about it recently as like the stories that we, that we pass on to the next generation. So there are, there are values, there are, there are beliefs that we, that we learn as, as we become adults. And part of the job of, of narrative is, is like how do we explain these concepts to the next generation. And I think um, games has an increasingly important role uh, in doing that. Um, and that's me. And you, Simona? Yeah. Um, uh, I guess the commonality between 
music and architecture for me is that um, it's about communication, it's about communicating a narrative and um, for me, um, you know, architecture is about communicating, I guess, a sense of a, a set of behaviours and how we can kind of change behaviours through architecture. And then music is about how to communicate, for me, like in my own queerness and my own um, identity as trans is trying to communicate myself and, um, you know, my own emotions, create a space for catharsis. Um, but also to through those two things, they kind of merge in this kind of desperation for belonging and for... Um, you know, for, for safety and, uh, yeah. Excellent. Um, so I think my approach to storytelling is, is different again from, from the rest of the panel. So my research focuses around the um, architecture in relation to healthcare, particularly for mental health environments. So much of my work is involved speaking to patients speaking to mental health service users to understand what they need from their environments. And so I think, for me, that's a vehicle of storytelling. It's the, the voices that perhaps aren't often heard, um, taking the time to listen to those experiences, uh, listening to those um, needs and desires, and then incorporating that into the way that we design. Um, and I think particularly related to mental health, there is still stigma around that. And the way that we design our buildings can exacerbate that negative stigma um, or it can help to uh, mitigate that. And so that's an architectural kind of storytelling in a very different way that we have some ownership over as architects um, and it is a really powerful way to use storytelling um, for therapeutic benefit. Um, I'm going to start with the sort of more academic part of the question, you know, what is narration? And to me, narration is relevant to architecture because it implies a kind of direction, a sequence and a knowledge that is handed on or recounted. And the architect is often in that position to be making those narrative decisions on, uh, on behalf of all sorts of people, users, clients, you know, members of the public who aren't even involved in the building. But I'm really interested in the difference between narration and stories or narrative and stories because for me stories are much more contingent and serendipitous and personal and storytelling and stories for me are one of the first connections to the transport that can happen between imagination and space. And I think back to being read bedtime stories. You know, so many of you will have had that experience where you are in a familiar and secure environment and yet you are taken somewhere exotic and amazing. And those early memories for me of the power of imagination and place and space and most importantly the companionship and interaction with the person who's telling you the story um, I think inform a lot of what I try and do in teaching to kind of humanise that control of narration. I've just realised that in sitting at the end of the panel, everyone's going to have already said and covered everything that I might already say, but here goes. Um, for me, narrative and storytelling is a way that is a method by which I could make myself understood 
So it's, it's, it's this act of understanding, but also how other people can help themselves to be understood. And Rachel and I kind of come at it through a few different ways we both teach architecture students. So I deal with very fledgling early kind of first and second year students who are finding what their voice is, but they're also training themselves to, to be receptive to other voices and narrative is a method that, that they can do that. And then um, I also do, um, you know, make drawings and I was just saying to the other panellists earlier that they're almost anti-narrative because most stories tend to deal with, with the interesting bits of life with the boring bits cut out, whereas I cut out all the interesting bits and just kind of draw all the boring, mundane, everyday bits that, that we routinely do, you know... Um, repetitively. So that's kind of my, my, um, my area of research. No, it's absolutely fascinating how each of the six of you have a different take on something that is quite universally acknowledged. Um, and I think one thing that you, particularly yourself, um, Dr. Hurst, as well as you, Ken, pointed out is the memory and also you, Simone, the emotions felt by that creative mind. Um, what are your opinions about the, I suppose, uh, significance and importance of well, the creative mind or the architect or the designer's own myth narrative in impacting and playing a role in their own creative process? Well, I think that architects are actually very coy about telling their personal stories and I'm really looking forward to writing a book, Architecture Confidential. Um, <laughs> because we are speaking generally and probably um, very unfairly to a lot of the fine architects out there we tend to remove our persona um, as, you know, a, a person who's been scared by stories at bedtime when we, when we um, take control of a project. And I think that kind of um, remove of person from the situation um, can lead to really dull architecture. So I'm very intrigued. Maybe I'm just nosy. I want to find out the skeletons in the closet, the mythological things, the, um, the fantastic imaginings and blend those with the pragmatic and really functional things that architects need to do and that intrigues me. And Katie's right, sorry, Dr Pedersich, and you can call me Rachel, Dr Hurst, I'm still not used to it yet, <laughs> um, uh, is right that the... It's kind of the ordinary bits that can actually be the places of the most fantastic imaginings. What about you, Simona, the take on, I suppose, emotion playing into the narrative? Uh, well, um, you know, I, I, well, I guess just if, if the architect's kind of removed from the narrative of the client, um, then I don't really know if the architect's like got the priorities in the right spot, you know. So um, it, there's a re there are really great opportunities for architects to uh, you know, focus on the identity of the client and let that tell the story and then we can start to tell stories through the buildings. And there are a few practices that do that but there are practices that are not interested in doing that. They're more interested in, I guess, their own... Um, you know, so, yeah, to be interested in materiality or to be interested in um, structure when um, there's probably more priorities like a crisis of safety or a crisis of identity or belonging or of privilege as well. So, and I, and I think that architecture is in that crisis at the moment. I think um, most of the stuff that goes up doesn't really care about 
um, displaced people. Um, so there are there's a, there's a, there are some really interesting um, things that we can tell with architecture that are really just kind of disconnected. Now cities are, are displaying that. So it sounds like it's about empathy and trying to put yourself in the other person's shoe to get a more educated understanding. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of why I'm more interested in yeah. understanding architecture as a set of behaviours and not actually a set of buildings or, you know, like one job I had, I think the last job I had, I had to like social media bathrooms all the time. And, you know, at the same time as a trans person, I was getting, you know, I was reading story after story about which, which bathroom I belonged in and, and that, um, you know, it was basically like a criminal offence for me to shit in a certain bathroom. Yet on Instagram, this particular practice was going nuts because it got like 500 likes because of its render of a bathroom. So I was like, architecture just needs to be, uh, you know, really fixed. <laughs> Suppose along the lines of empathy then, I mean, games, it's a virtual simulation. So can I know that your current project at the moment, I mean, absolutely celebrated for Monumental Valley, but one thing that's actually coming out is Florence. And the, this idea of a, you know, experiencing a very realistic um, situation of love rather than it being idealised, but <laughs> pain as well, I suppose. Yeah, um, so the, the game that we've been working on for the past two years is called Florence, and um, it's a love story um, between two people, and it's, it's set in Melbourne, um, and it's kind of based on you know some of my experiences and, and the people around me. And um, I think, you know, in games, there's we have this kind of aversion to talking about emotion sometimes because it feels I think some people feel like games are this uh, activity that's about fun you know fun in games and that to talk about or to celebrate or investigate emotions feels pretentious it feels like oh you're trying to make something artistic here and I would say yes like I think games can be an art form and can function as an art form and um, you know I think everybody who enjoys games whether they admit it or not are engaging on an emotional level whether that's um, they're, they're enjoying it for just the relaxation or as a social engagement or for the storytelling um, and so with Florence, we are tackling a love story, which has the potential to be very, very cheesy. And so that's been the challenge of the project, is like, how do we use gameplay to investigate um, all the emotions you go through in a, in a romantic relationship? So um, how can we use gameplay to portray um, the nervousness of your first dates? Or how do we... Um, or like how you feel when you move in together with a partner and you have to make space for this person in your life coming into your, into your, into your apartment. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're working on. So before we move on, I was wondering to open up to the floor. Did anybody by any chance have any questions for our panel? Oh, yes. There we go. Do we have the mic anywhere? Q&A mic?
Um, good evening. Uh, thank you for giving this presentation. I really like the topic that's being discussed tonight. Um, one of the main questions I have is where one of you discussed about how architects have been completely removed from the creativity side and therefore we've got these really boring buildings. And my question is, does the building, when you're talking about boring buildings, do you mean by the aesthetics of it or the functionality of the building as a whole? Because I sometimes feel like when a building looks fascinating from the external, it can be really colorful and crazy. But unfortunately, when you go on the inside, it can be quite plain because of the certain functions it has. So I'd like to know what are your opinions or responses to that? Who, who would you like to answer that? Um, any of you? I just don't Into know. the panel. Um, just any would be. I would love to just hear all of your opinions. Well, I'll, I'll make a quick response to that. A building can actually look boring inside and out and still contain fantastic stories. So they're not, you know, they're sometimes the most impressive looking building can actually be resistant to anyone living their own story in it. And that kind of obsession that you're talking about of getting it a bit wrong um, could be, um, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that's playing out. So small gestures can actually set up the places where amazing things happen. You know, just having a seat in the right spot or um, a window in the right place that allows for daydreaming. Um, I think on that note as well, a lot of the buildings around, in my research, looking at mental health service environments, those buildings are telling stories, but they're not uh, helpful stories. So they're not necessarily boring, but they can be really um, non-supportive to the person availing themselves of those services. So, for example, mental health typically doesn't get the funding that um, other aspects of the hospital campus do, like cardiology and the really life and death stuff. So mental health will be in some dodgy back building in the crappy part of the campus near the car park. Um, so that doesn't say a lot about the value that we are placing on these service users who are coming. And, and they're often repeat users. You know, these are people who are perhaps availing themselves of these services multiple times um, and experiencing that negative stigma through the way that we design the buildings. You know, equally those visible security measures that often accompany these kinds of environments are suggesting messages that you're dangerous, that you will act out. Um, and this is a kind of storytelling in a very different way that is actually not helpful. So I think the onus is on us as architects and designers to try and look at how we can design in a different way to contribute positive messages or notions of equality um, or reduce that sense of abnormality and segregation and difference that the building of fabric currently does. Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah. Wonderful. I was just going to add that um, this is something that I come across with students a lot that are, that are you know, younger students and they're just starting their first year that... The, when they study they have a lot of very static media to work with and I think this idea of, of narrative is something that, that, that is timely because a lot of our tools that we're using to firstly instigate a building project or a design and the way that we communicate are changing and um, you know when I studied every image that we had was 
this image of this room and it was fixed in time, yet you think about the life cycle of that space and that would go on 10, 20, 30 or 100 years and that's something that's actually very, very hard to communicate through drawing, yet drawings are often the primary tools that we have to do that communication. So somewhere there's a little bit of a misstep and um, younger audiences I think are getting much better educated in getting some of their, first of all, in understanding things through narrative, but getting their vision across and what they'd like to achieve. But in a very preliminary sense, um, the idea of thinking something through and walking through a space and having a lot of faith um, as students, but then also as a designer later on, to your own embodied understandings of space that you have you know even if you're a student of architecture in your first year you, you don't have a lot of expertise but you have a damn lot of um, inbuilt embodied memory of of when a window is in the wrong place or or in a bathroom when you have to take your glasses off and put your makeup on <laughs> if there are no horizontal surfaces and you have to put the toilet seat down to do it that's not a good bathroom so you you know you have a lot of this information but maybe there's a disconnect in how some of that gets processed through universities and later on in the working environment, how we communicate and how we trust some of our own kind of tacit knowledge that we have about space. I think, too, broadening your definition of what makes an interesting building and it's something about sense of place, like it's not just materials and form and space relationships it's actually its users so if the users of that building exclude a significant amount of the population or um, only just go towards you know more normative um, you know kind of ways of living um, then how is that building exciting it's exciting for like a very small portion of the population or it might actually if you've got you know, 50 of these buildings or 10 of these buildings in a particular precinct, then it probably makes that precinct particularly boring as well. So, um, again, I think um, the discussion, I, I would like people to really consider um, that architecture is more about a set of behaviours and users as well, more than it's just about the privilege of materiality or about surface. Thank you so much for those enlightening answers. Oh, Oh, sorry, I think we've got a question here. Hello? Yeah, just a quick question to follow on from that. The, is it possible, though, that the story has changed to the extent that, that a large uh, number of the population are actually building products themselves at this point? Like, you know, that, that subjectivity has, like, uh, dissipated to the point where... where, where the You know, maybe one, at one point we, um, we were actually had the latitude to construct ourselves and keep our, you know, like a, there's, metaf there's, a, there's a shift in metaphor, really, from the individual being like a, uh, potentially a stone that can, can be stacked in, a, in an architecture of society and potentially we've moved into a, the metaphor of, uh, you know, pretty much um, slumped concrete. Like, you know, you basically provide the overall mould is the internet and then you keep smashing the um, subjectivities until all of the bubbles of air have risen to the top and they've actually kind of, uh, you know, fitted into whatever the new, the new way is. And that, that kind of requires sort of, you know, like uh, engineering that actually um, destabilises and fragments society, drives wedges in wherever possible, kind of, uh, you know, reduces the, you know, um, various other kind of things. But I, I'm just wondering whether there's... Is that just a... Am I totally off track or is there some parallels? No, with, not you know? at all. I think we've got... Kerry, um, I always love listening to you. <laughs> I, I love the idea of us being slumped com concrete 
And I think one of the things that I wanted to say about storytelling as a device for thinking about architecture, and it relates to what you're saying too, is how many stories have been liberated, you know, post-modernist, post-structuralist, there is no single truth. And um, teaching students, I will often try and get them to make stories out of the same kind of situation. And the variety and diversity that comes out of that is a complete challenge. It's, like, it's incredibly hard for, for an architect to take all of that on board and to, um, uh, in, to kind of let their ego show, I suppose. So the idea that you have an, your own personal story as an architect that you bring to a building is one which could be really seriously challenged it maybe is a background thing, and maybe architecture is a background thing um, for the amorphous, changing, shifting, you know, the unknown kind of quality of occupation and exchange that's, that's taking over society. I've got no idea if that answered your question, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid we're going to have to keep moving on unless... Is it right? Correct. Right, so to continue on for that, I mean, we've got some... Excellent insight coming out from here. But one thing I would like to draw attention back to is what our first answer was with regards to what narrative is, Josh. I think one thing that's fascinating is that you related to how storytelling helped you when, in, I suppose, complex issues and understanding it. I wonder if you knew that your game Framed got praised by Common Sense Media for its ability to allow families to openly talk about troubling issues of violence. So that your game is actually doing what you have described your narrative to be and what your thoughts are on that. Uh, I didn't know that. So that's actually pretty cool. Um, for the, I mean, for the first one, um, the first time we did it, it was actually like the first few tests were kind of like overly gratuitous um, and like just didn't feel right, you know. Um, and, and I think that, that, that there is a sense in video games as well of, of being violent that we kind of deliberately started pulling pulling back from, like, you know, what what is the core message that we're trying to deliver? Um, so, I, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting. I, I can see that in frame two for sure, because um, it's 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 about this kind of like brotherly sisterly relationship, and the uh, sort of themes of setting a good example despite like shit circumstances, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess thematically, the the act of being able to change the outcome of things by rearranging time and space is more about being able to correct mistakes. So that was yeah. <laughs> because this brings us to, I suppose, one of narrative's strongest elements: the ability um, that not only uh, well. You also worked at Electronic Arts, which is one of the originators of the game Sims. And the creative mind behind that was actually William Wright. And he stated and um, praised Christopher Alexander's patent language as being his main source of inspiration. And I'm sure all of us architects are aware of that title. Um, his take on simulation and also virtual programming is that because that you are able to test and trial it out, it is one of the be- um, most efficient and best ways to actually figure out complex issues that we are too is too difficult for one mind to actually resolve is that one of the things that that you were taken into account uh, I, not that specifically but I will say that I'm pretty sure it's Christopher Alexander he also did a timeless way of building 
uh, that's the best book on game design I've ever read. Like, honestly, like, um, like in game design, like, when you're designing a video game, you're designing around a set of behavior, behaviors and possibility space, and your use of negative space to draw behaviors out, um, which I think you were speaking about before. Um, that, that's kind of all I had to say about that, um, but yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, on top of that, I think what's interesting about games is um, as the player moves through the space, they're interacting with the space and they can be changing the space. So, you know, I think of Minecraft as being one of the most important games ever built uh, because it, allow, it, it, it incentivizes the player to, to transform their space to, to look at it, you know, through a gaming lens and, and play with it, you know, be playful, generate their own narratives, do that together as a group, and, and that's accessible to a, a very young audience. My um, nine-year-old is a gun at Minecraft, and I just go, wow. <laughs> right, so, so, you know, I think about, um, you know, Josh and I, we probably grew up with Mario and, and yeah. Doom, those kinds of games. And, and they're great, but they are very predicated on winning and, com- and completing. And Minecraft is so interesting because Minecraft is more like Lego. It's more freeform. And I think about the next generation of game designers are going to be kids who grew up on Minecraft, and they're going to make games that are about that. And I think the, the, the same is true for architecture. I think, you know, um, your kid, you know, having grown up with Minecraft, is going to possibly design completely different buildings. Um, and, and, and same with virtual reality. You know, virtual reality allows us to experiment and experience spaces that possibly could never exist in the real world. And that blows my mind, the fact that, you know, now your imagination is not limited by physical realities so yeah so i'm watching my nine-year-old on school holiday like every day just going nuts on minecraft and then i'm like trying to like identify with him doing this and be like yeah in first year i just remember like living in 3d studio max and i was listening to like air's like second album and i would just and a luke slater record and would i just be listening to bang and techno till 4 a.m in the morning building these cities you know and it was like this experience but that's actually like you know, when I think of, like, Kraftwerk singing a love song about neon lights or, like, you know, Metropolis or something, and then I think about Blade Runner and I think about these people who are kind of, like, trying to escape a cop who's trying to kill them, and then I think about, um, you know, my own experience of the city as a trans woman trying to walk down the street without, getting, without you know, having, you know, trans misogyny enacted against me in, in a really violent sense. Um, I'm actually considering space not only in an architectural way, but I, like, like, you know, I wrote a piece of music like three days ago which sounded to me like the kind of soundtrack to what it would be like for me to escape like a, a, you know, a violent attack. So, um, you know, when I think about narratives of music and narratives of architecture, like they're really, really seriously connected to me um, in a way that gaming might be, in the way that filmmaking might be as well. I wanted to kind of... Kind of note to Josh that my five and a half year old is excellent at, at framed to the same level that he's got beyond the level that my husband, who just turned forty, is at. And the interesting aspect there is that 
how is it that something so complex is understood in a sophisticated way by someone who is only five and a half, where their mental capacity is is at the same level as someone who's who's forty? And the, the maybe that's a bit of an indictment on my husband, though he's <laughs> he does play a lot of games. He's quite good at it. So maybe I can't I, figure Minecraft yeah. out. I just go, no, nah, I'll just watch you. I'm forty-two. Maybe I just have a precocious five and a half-year-old, but. Something I've noticed that he's started to do drawings that, that, you know, when I was playing games, there were um, Donkey Kong, and that kind of gives you an indication of my age, but they were elevationally based, or Frogger, which was plan-based. And, um, you know, Monument Valley does these weird three, fourth-dimensional almost things because they're an isometric space, which is a little bit more about pulling the person into the space. And in your games, there's plans, there's perspectives, there's elevations. And um, so my son drew a drawing the other day of our garden from the top view, which I find really unusual. So I'm just thinking, you know, in 10 years, if you could fast forward to these people who are five and then they're 15 or they're 20, what some of their spatial understanding might be like through having worked on those games and just another note that Minecraft's used by um, UN Habitat um, on a project called Block by Block I don't know if anyone's familiar with this where um, a group of people go to um, certain communities through in, in Africa and they will allow members of the public to, they teach them how to learn the game and then if there's a particular project um, in train in that community there might be uh, making a new garden or a new playground. People will then use Minecraft to design it and all this information um, is then given to the team of planners or the team of designers and they, they refer to that. Um, but this is a way to give a voice in, in a very you know, quick way through some technology that it's not hard to understand. And, um, and the, you know, the people that were involved were saying you know, it's really interesting because the planners and the people making these decisions are, are 45 to 50-year-old people and older, yet 50% of the population in Kenya, say, are under the age of 20 or 25. So um, I think it's giving a voice in a, in a very manageable tool to people that would normally have it in some of those environments. I think that brings us to a good point about, I mean, we understand that narratives and also games are assisting in resolving or trying to find solutions for complex issues. As educators in architecture... Have you found that narrative is playing a very big role or is becoming a very significant implementation into your own design studios? Um, I think it's increasingly uh, a possibility and um, uh, maybe it's, it's um, a kind of absorption into the individual and self, you know, a kind of self-celebrity to tell your story, tell the story of your building, tell the story of every detail, you know, it can get a little wearing. And I um, have learnt from a couple of projects I set um, where I asked first-year students to, to tell me a memory of place because I thought, well, they don't know how to communicate through drawing or model-making yet. They're, you know, like this is week two. Um, tell me about an important memory of place, write about it. And then we did all sorts of, you know, exercises from that. But I learnt that there are also some pretty shitty stories out there. I don't mean, I don't mean shitty in, like, distressing. I mean just banal. And, you know, like, if I read another thing about my favourite memory of place is being within the tube of a wave, which was pretty much the sort of stereotypical boy response, and the girl response was my night at the formal... So I stopped setting that exercise and, and 
first I modified it to say, let's talk about the built environment, an environment you actually have control over. I thought about the two things that were coming through those kind of stereotypical things, which was a love of place and freedom and landscape, things which are important to architects, um, things which are important to the people who use architecture, and of occasion, ritual, feeling special, and you know, could, could take something. I took something from those stories. So, so stories don't just work one way as an educator. It's actually listening to the stories that are coming back and understanding who you're teaching. And I've been teaching for, I'm not going to tell you how long, but the stories and the acceptance of um, uh, uh, contingency, shift, change, um, you know, lack of control is much stronger. The other thing I notice from listening to the stories of my students is that when they make future scenarios or think about a story or scenario planning, they used to do very dystopian views of the future. And in the last three or four years, that shifted to being, yes, they're very future-based. We don't get historic novels, narratives that are about history or the past from architecture students. They actually don't seem to be that interested in the past. We see things which are all about the future and they're actually more optimistic. And I'm wondering if this has got something to do with the shift in game stuff, which is not nearly as gothic, violent and horrible as it used to be, but it's actually more like Florence, you know? It's kind of positive, it's everyday, it's, um, you know, you're kind of in control of stuff that isn't just people trying to kill you. Uh, and last point about that, which I'm very curious about with gaming kind of stuff, is how is there a situation where architecture itself is the protagonist in the narrative, where instead of you controlling it, the architecture talks back? Because in film and in literature... Architecture is often malevolent, evil, the door that shuts, the window that breaks, you know, the stuff goes on and the architecture doesn't behave very well. Can I respond to that? Um, so when, when myself and my team worked on Monument Valley um, several years ago, what I wanted to achieve was that, with that was making a game where architecture was the main character um, and, and not a background element. And uh, there is a protagonist in the game, but uh, usually when you are a protagonist in a game, you interact with the world through them. So, you know, if you are Mario, then you press a button to jump and you press a button to, to duck and you're controlling Mario. In Monument Valley, you interact with the architecture. And so the problem solving uh, comes through the architecture. It comes through manipulating the space. Um, and as the protagonist, Ida, moves throughout the environment, the architecture reacts to her. It's sort of, it's sort of choreographed to her. And, you know, like the, the game is titled Monument Valley because we think of the valley as, um, as having a personality and a story to it as well. Um, I guess I'd like to add to uh, Rachel's and um, Ken's earlier points about the role of architecture um, in, in the way that we teach. Um, so I ran a master's studio at the University of Melbourne called A House for Unrequited Love. Um, and so the students were tasked with taking a novel that dealt with the theme of unrequited love. And those clients in that novel 
became uh, the sorry the characters in that novel became the clients to which the students had to respond and design a house for those characters to to play out the novel and to unpack those relationships so narrative here was a really useful tool in that client engagement that we typically can't uh, offer in an education context so it's very difficult for those students to um, have a kind of client to bounce ideas off. So this enabled that kind of uh, consideration. Um, but it also challenged a lot of the students to step outside of their comfort zone and to design um, houses, in this case, that were outside of their um, moral philosophies. So um, we had students whose novels had um, a couple and maybe a mistress and so it was this dynamic of unrequited love and interplay of this kind of uh, polygamous relationship, which was really outside of the student's comfort zone. And sometimes we have to be, that's part of our role as architects. You know, sometimes we may have a very different view to that of our clients, um, and that can be really challenging and really confronting. Um, so how do we come to a point where we start to identify with those characters, those clients, those needs and desires um, and design for them in a really positive way. Um, and I think that's, that's something that's really useful in, in our practice as well. Simona, you might. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I talk about empathy being a really important part of not only the education process for architects, but also the process of practice as a, as a strategy, as a tool. It's, you know, my, I guess my PhD is not really about making a list of, you know, problems. It's about... Um, you know, trying to work out how to strategically intervene into practice and into space so that empathy can actually be part of practice. So our buildings reflect that empathy. So if we can actually, you know, figure out what our clients' needs are, um, you know, we can design spaces that function a lot better and we can kind of future-proof them as well. Um, uh, uh, I just said, yeah, you sometimes have to be able to I suppose with clients or teaching students, they have to be given the opportunity to, to think into the future about what, what their needs might be and sometimes you don't know what they are and when students are more successful or when they're not so successful and, and they know that there might be a... Um, in, in the studio that I ran last semester, there were, there were two parents and their young baby, Otto, and the students that maybe hadn't understood that this might be a house for them for 20 or 30 years had labelled the rooms and, and one room was called Baby Otto's Room. <laughs> and I thought by the time this gets through council and built little baby Otto ain't going to be a baby anymore. But the, the one that was really successful was um, I asked them to do little film sequences of 60 seconds and one of them, when I watched and they'd handed it in, brought a tear to my eye because they had... It was just a scene of the central courtyard and, and um, the clients were vegetarians. So over the 60 seconds, all the plants in the courtyard were kind of growing and then they were cut down and then they were growing again. And the parents, that the images, were they were slowly getting older and the little Otto was a little boy and then he had a bike and then he had a backpack and then in one scene, just at the end, he was gone. And, you know, he'd moved out of home. And it was just the most beautiful um, understanding of... of that life cycle and how long they might want to be in that particular house. Um, and, and, you know, that was just a first-year student who would have been 18 or so and um, had made room in, in their spatial thinking there for how they might have 
you know, understood the project in the context of, you know, it's not here for the first day that the clients move in. It's there as an ongoing um, environment for them for the rest of their lives, perhaps, in that building. Well, speaking of students, clients and all different types of practitioners, I think it's a good opportunity to get some questions from the audience. Did anybody have any queries for our panellists so far? Ah, we have a lot. All right. Hello. <laughs> um, first of all, I should say I know nothing about games and also architects. I'm just asking this from um, listening the stories here. Um, I was thinking about this space, for example, because it's obviously in the middle of botanical garden, but as you can see, everything in here is rather like artificial than what we are typically think of um, a nature or something. Like for example, every stairs are five, like from here and there, and every like has LED lights <laughs> and all the grid and everything. So I was curious about, okay, in terms of common sense, people likes um, what they expect to have, you know, if you are in a botanical garden, maybe people want to have something more natural and much more organic and less sort of aligned like here. And by being here, I can see the difference between us sitting inside of this place compared to people outside of this place, like sitting on the grass and, you know, stuff. So I was curious about when if someone designed this area, then maybe you cannot help worrying about whether people like this despite of the difference of this place compared to others. Same, um, probably something similar for the games like Monument Valley compared to, I don't play much games, I played Monument Valley before, so compared to other games I played, it's I found it's designed like much more slower face. It's not like tap 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 tap. It's, it's like you 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 think a lot, um, and the sort of face is slower. And as a cr creator of architect and also games, I'm curious about how you like make yourself sure that whether people can like this even though it uses very different like mannerism or metaphor of what we know as people usually like. Hi, uh, thanks for your question. Um, I mean, with regards to this pavilion being in the middle of the gardens, I, I think, I mean, I think the rest of you will have, a, 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 you know, a more informed comment about the use of public space, but I, I think subverting expectations and surprising people is as an important function of, of what we do as as practitioners of art and culture i think people don't always know what they want and um and certainly they're often resistant and they know what they don't want and somewhere in between is the opportunity to surprise and inspire people and hopefully they learn something out of it um the second part of your question with regards to Monument Valley, um, it is a slower kind of game. And 
I think we just trusted in ourselves that we felt that there was a space and an audience for a game that was about slowness and beauty, which was kind of in contrast to other mobile games, which are, I, I like to use the word disposable, um, where they're just to relieve boredom. Um, and I, I don't think that that's incredibly innovative. I just think that's recognizing that there is diversity in games and even mobile games. And, um, you know, Josh's game Framed is, is of the same class where, you know, games can be intellectual and can investigate, you know, different types of storytelling and, and uh, different themes. So, um, you know, if anything, it's just, it's just going beyond the immediate reaction of like, oh, people want this, we should make that. I think there's always a part of you as a creator that goes, okay, people think they want this, but let's, let's give them a bit of something else that they, they didn't even know that they wanted yet. Keeping in mind as well that sometimes some of the, the most amazing pieces of architecture, um, people didn't like those at the beginning. Um, and so being confronting or being provocative is often a really good quality of architecture. And sometimes you have to design things that people don't like at the beginning um, in order to create that change. Um, particularly, you know, people are resistant to change. People have ingrained values and ingrained principles. You know, as architects, we have this too of ways that we have done things, tried and true methods. But sometimes that isn't the best way. Sometimes change and innovation is where you get the most positive benefits. So I think we've only got a little bit of time left. Um, before we wrap up, I think one thing I'd like to ask the panellists at large is obviously storytelling tales and any type of myths have been around for eons, you know, longer than what's actually been documented. However, it's only recently in the last maybe decade or so it started to generate a whole lot of hype. Could I get your opinion as to why you think such a big, I suppose, focus is now coming back, not only just in architecture, but also in music and also in games? That This, I suppose, uh, focus on narrative is actually coming back. I, I wonder if generally Western culture, Western 20th century culture has tried to repress a hell of a lot of stuff that's always existed. I would certainly say that it's tried to exclude and repress um, you know the stories of uh, indigenous stories for instance and that's wanted to um, suppress and erase you know genders from across the world as well so um, I think it's good that um, there's a movement to want to resist that normalization that um, Western culture has just, you know, and sort of modernism almost has just like really tried to push upon and push upon in sort of trying to colonise. I think part of decolonization is to, um, you know, change the way and change the lens and the perspectives of, of Western culture and Western thinking and Western architecture as well. And, sure. and I think part of trying to find stories is part of that. Any of our other panellists? I actually disagree that there's kind of like a shift to more storytelling or more more narrative. I think it's always been there. It's in um, it's been in 
what are seen as static forms of painting, narrative paintings, tell amazing stories through layers and layers of stuff. I, I, I think what th there's an increasing availability of the dissemination of stories and that my comment before about banal stories, we're, going to, we're actually going to drown under narrative if we're not careful. How do we make certain that we have something to say or if we don't have something to say, that at least we can say it eloquently. I think there's also still a lot of topics that are very taboo. So t Simona's touched on a few. I see a lot in my research around mental health. Um, so, you know, talking about suicide is not something that we do in our everyday lives. But should we be normalising that? Um, and so these are, there are a lot of narratives, I think, that up until more recently... Um, have been silenced voices or have been vulnerable voices that haven't come to the fore. So I think there's a bit of a shift there around... We see it in patient-centred care. We're seeing it in the way that we're approaching design now, bringing our users into our design processes. So that's about um, methods that give voices where there were none before. And I think that's a vehicle of storytelling in multiple ways. Um, which is, has brought some more diversity and inclusivity to the way that we practice. Bored of the same stories and the same people telling them. <laughs> uh, I, I guess similar to what was said already is just that the uh, the number of ways and like the the barriers to entry have just dropped so much um, that that we we do have this kind of explosion of of stories and some of them can just be like someone's tweets of the day and um and, you know we 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 are kind of i think we have a gen we have a generation of people who are encouraged to share their experiences um so putting them both together kind of uh has this you know we we now have a more a, a wider range of types of stories as well and types of experiences so i hope everybody's tweeting on the hashtag <laughs> another form of storytelling isn't there an old saying about may you have only one eye but twice as many ears, you know? So the other corollary to storytelling is that if you don't have a story, at least maybe you can practice your listening. That's very true. I think I'd like to just, because you um, touch on, Rachel, your, your note about it's a different mode of storytelling, whether it be through the craft or whatnot, that's actually the one that's instigating. Well, it's not so much as... Uh, shift well I think just having a voice isn't enough I think if someone's going to listen to you you have to do some work and be critical and storytelling if you think about the stories the myths and legends which are pretty much the same across cultures across time they deal with two things inevitably they deal with fantasy and imagination and they deal with pragmatic boring stuff at the same time they're a way of reconciling day-to-day -day life and the life of the mind and those stories are told over and over again in songs or in poems or in paintings and they're handed around like like core knowledge and it's the inflection of them that's really interesting and that one can listen to 
I don't think we all have to have a news story. We maybe have to, as Katisha's suggesting, have really good listening ears to the nuance of difference. But um, storytelling, in that sense, is this fantastic unifying quality of who we are as people, mind and body. And that's why I find it just core to architecture. So before we draw this night to a close, did anyone else have any questions from the audience? Hi. Uh, I have this theory that um, built environment... <laughs> sorry. The built environment is an art form one, if it has a narrative, like, for example, the Acropolis of Athens. The architectural itinerary is designed in such a way to show one part more prominent than the other and the path creates a narrative. So, like, the time sequence of architecture can be related to game design and film and music... But do you think that a regular house in a suburb is like just a house or that can be a powerful narrative if it's not designed in that way? I'd like to bring that back to the studio that I ran on a house for unrequited love. And that was very much about unpacking those unspoken narratives. Um, And there are familial relationships that play out inside the domestic environment that are strong narratives. Um, We saw a lot of exploration um, around gender issues through the modernist times. Um, So that was very much about keeping your wife under control, keeping her away from public eye. A lot of these attitudes, uh, they were played out in the domestic environment of the home. So that was the the setting and the the theatre for that to unfold. So I think it's less about typology and more about the architectural techniques that are used to tell stories, to evoke stories, and to play with those relationships and cue those behaviours, whatever they might be. Yeah. Any other questions at all? Sure. Well, I'm afraid that brings us to a conclusion for tonight's panel. Could I please ask a round of applause for our wonderful guys during this voyage tonight? I truly hope you have all been able to add another chapter into your own story through tonight's experience and that it's continually enriched by your own individual experiences. Thank you and good night.